Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Well, 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 welcome to another episode of Mormonism Live, Radio Free Mormon. How are you this exceptional night? Good evening. I am so excited. Or to quote Dr. John DeLynn, I'm super excited about the guests we have on tonight's show. Yeah, I met Tom Selleck from the 80s, and uh, what do you think? I think it rubbed off. (laughs) And you're wearing the shirt from The Thing, which was a movie that I really enjoyed back in the day, but uh, I don't know when that movie came out, but... Well, it depends on which version. There was one in the 1950s with James Arness playing the titular character. There was a remake in the 1980s with Kurt Russell. And this is neither of those, actually. This is the thing from the Fantastic Four. Oh, gotcha. The thing from the Fantastic Four. I see. Do you know what time it is, Bill? It is Mormonism Live time. It's clobbering time. Clobbering time. (laughs) Oh, man. I was was doing a Google ad today, and I was looking uh, at the episode... Uh, Two Hills Camorra, and I was listening to a couple minutes of it, and I was laughing. I, the The banter between you and me in the beginning is just hilarious, and I was laughing out loud like four or five times. So this is a lot of fun to do this show with you, RFM, and I'm just glad to uh, partner up with you and do this. And tonight is a really cool episode. Tell us about it. Well, thank you. I feel the same way. Now, I do have to make an announcement because um, I have been forced to. No, seriously, though, this Friday, I'm going to be doing an interview with my friend from Priesthood Dispatches. So he's the fellow in England who does a podcast. He is one of the Brit Vengers, I believe. And I'm just doing my part to, in the words of Sir Paul McCartney, hands across the water, hands across the sky. I and I'll be doing reference. my part and I'll be on the week after. Nice. Oh, you will be? Yep. Oh, fantastic. Maven on priesthood dispatches. I like it. Yeah, I don't have the priesthood, but I I guess I'm allowed. (laughs) Yeah. Did you get permission from your ecclesiastical leader? (laughs) (laughs) Bill can be your bishop, so ask him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on for anybody else, but from my point of view, Bill has frozen. Same. I thought it might be me. Do you still hear my sound? Oh, you're back. We're back. It happened a little bit today, too. Yeah, it happened earlier when we were recording as well. You've gone back to your anime sort of image there, Maven. Is there a reason for that? Uh, No, I've had some issues uh, with my uh, quote-unquote studio. So, Well, you have the best studio of all three of us, I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Enough, enough. We've got to bring our special guests on because I am very excited to have not one, but two of the biggest names in Mormon studies in the past 40 years on our show tonight. And those people are Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf. And there they are. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Dan and Brent, how are you tonight? Great. Doing very well, thank you. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show. For the one person out of the hundreds who are watching live right now, by the way, Bill, what's the count on the live audience? It is already up to 230 people, and that's pretty impressive only a few minutes in. So out of the one person who doesn't know who both of you are, I want to do an introduction, but because I am the quintessential lazy learner, I didn't want to have to go and do the the research on everything that both of you have done as far as Mormon studies go. And I thought it would be nice, not if each of you introduced yourselves, but if each of you introduced the other, because I know you have a longstanding relationship of about 40 years that you've been friends, 40 years, perhaps this year, there's going to be an anniversary in May of the first time you met. It is. So Dan, would you start us off by introducing Brent to our audience? Brent, be nice. <laughs> Brent is is well known in uh, internet circles, uh, especially a few years back when he was really uh, quite involved with writing on um, the Mad Board, what is called the Mad Board, you know, Mormon Discussion Board and Fair Board or whatever you want to call it. Uh, He's really well known and he uh, knows his stuff and he's really smart and uh, uh, has a nice deep voice that, you know, something I uh, uh, wish I had. <laughs> and um, he's also published uh, some uh, books or, or a book. Uh, he, he, he really got to be known for this book here. And what is that book for those of us who New can't Approaches. See it? New Approaches to the Book of Mormon. Explorations of Critical Methodology, which I wrote one of the essays in, in this book. And uh, then we then we did this book together. It's a little glossy. Um, American Apocrypha, edited by Dan Vogel and Brent Lee Medcalf. And you insisted on having your name first. Isn't that right, Dan? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so uh, the, well, maybe we'll get into talking about what's inside those books. Some, some people were asking about that. Um, so, and Brent published uh, an essay in his own book on uh, the priority of Mosiah which is uh, pretty good. Uh, it has a lot of uh, information in there that is kind of foundational to understanding the Book of Mormon. And I think, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I will anyway. Uh, good. I think that is a groundbreaking essay that Brent wrote uh, in the early 90s or published in the early 90s, I think. 93. 93. And um, so much so that it has become, I think, generally accepted by pretty much all students of the Book of Mormon, regardless of what side they're on. Yeah, I believe that's true. It's the first thing I think about when I when I think about uh, what Brent has written. Yeah, uh, it, he's written some other things published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and uh, on the Book of Mormon also. But he's quite the scholar, and, and he's really uh, good at uh, Book of Abraham stuff which I learned a lot from him before I wrote my most recent book. Uh, but Brent is a really, uh, besides being really intelligent, he's really a genuine 
sincere type person. And uh, I've enjoyed my friendship with him for 40 years. I've been able to talk to him whenever I want, which is, uh, you know, pretty lucky that I have that kind of access to Brent. <laughs> yes, and you live in completely different states, correct? We always have. Yeah. <laughs> so we've had long distance relationship and mostly uh, because Brent lived in uh, the Salt Lake area. Whenever I went to the archives or Sunstone or sometimes Mormon uh, History Association meeting, uh, I would see him there. And we also seen each other in other states in uh, some of you know, the John Whitmer Historical Association meetings. Uh, uh, Rochester was our last one that we met at and we went to the sacred grove oh i hope we, i hope we get to the sacred i hope we get to the, the sacred grove meeting i, I cannot believe <laughs> oh my gosh by the way so, for everybody watching we just had 20 minutes before we even started the show of the most oh raucous irreverent fun <laughs> chat between these two they're they're amazing they're fun and they're incredible scholars. But first off, before we go to Brent's introduction of Dan, Dan, you've written a recent book. You did not mention the name of the book, and I want you to be able to mention it because we've got lots of people watching now, and there will be thousands watching after this has gone uh, viral. Yeah, this is, this is my most recent book. So I, I finished my biography of Joseph Smith's middle years in, in Ohio and Missouri, and so I decided to, you know, try to work out some of the puzzles dealing with the Book of Abraham. So this is the Book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and critique. It's a little more than just uh, the dealing with the apologists, because I really want to teach what the Book of Abraham's about, not just, you know, contradict some of their really bad theories. And um, but it's certainly much better than this book by Kerry Milstein. Well, what book is that? The Book of Abraham. Oh, oh you, yeah. you finally got it. Great. I got it. This is Kerry Milstein's newest book. It's a little book. I mean, you need, you need a magnifying glass to read it. It's it so looks small. like a pamphlet. Yeah, it's kind of an enlarged pamphlet, but... It looks like oh, the Book I'm of there, Mormon if he removed all the It Came to Passes. He is an Egyptologist, so... Yes, he is. He's okay in that area. But... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, we're looking forward to a review that I'm sure is forthcoming of Carrie well, Milstein's new book. I am working on a video. Uh, I did one uh, uh, response to John Gee, and now I'm working on one in response to Carrie Milstein. Uh, and Maven says, it's so cute and tiny. Yeah, that's what Carrie's <laughs> wife says too, Maven. <laughs> but seriously, folks, seriously. Oh my gosh. Well, we just went off the deep end, right? You know, we're how long have we been on? Less oh, I'm doing five. a half gainer into the deep end. <laughs> so anyway, um, Brent, it is your turn to introduce Dan Vogel. Okay. And first off, I want to say to all of you that I've made a commitment to myself not to drop any f-bombs while we're on the show tonight so is that what i make you think of oh uh, oh damn <laughs> Dude, no i'm just kidding so 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 first off what what we have a surprise for you brent look who's joining us <laughs> this is this is this is your life brent Metcalf. Oh, wonderful. dan peterson do you have anything you'd like to say to brent well uh well 
I love the picture uh, of Dan Peterson. It's like an egg grew a mustache. Yeah. (laughs) That's evil. And so I'm not, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, So, so, so my good friend, Dan Vogel, I I mean, he's an award-winning author of numerous volumes you know his mormon document series that he did is one of the most significant works ever published on early mormon documents he did a complete source critical analysis of the history of the church going through every single entry and identifying all the sources that that was composed from um he's done one of his his more recent ones in additional to that one was his work on the wilford woodruff journals which is just astounding and amazing and um i'm not going to go into all the details of what drew me to dan originally but i i will say this Okay, I'm going to go into one of the details. His boyish good looks. I will say this: that that he is probably the most tenacious researcher I have ever met, and and that's what attracted me to Dan, even though we were at polar opposites of the spectrum, as far as faith and belief goes. What drew me to him was just how brilliant he was with his research and he was willing to do the hard work and to get into the murky trenches of of history and find things out and dan is that person he's one of the most brilliant if not the most brilliant researcher i know and um well the 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 fact is is that we we've known each other uh, like we've already discussed for 40 years, and I consider Dan one of my best friends. And it's been a relationship that we have sometimes acted out almost sibling rivalries at times, you know. But but the bottom line is, is we love each other dearly. And we almost always end our phone calls by telling each other how much we love each other. And and he is just a very dear person to me. And that's there's nothing that can change that. Okay, we'll see what happens okay. after tonight's show. Yeah. <laughs> I love you yeah. too. Yes. I love you, my brother. <laughs> yes. Wow, this is wonderful. I'm really glad I had the idea of having you introduce each other. Yeah. I love it. Dan, can you tell our audience, and when I'm saying Dan, I mean Dan Vogel, just to be clear. Dan, can you tell can you tell our audience how it is? There he is. <laughs> the incredible edible Dan. But, <laughs> but Dan, Dan Vogel, could you tell our audience how the two of you met? Well, uh, um, Brent re- recently reminded me that he knew about me before we even met, but I'll let him tell that part of the story. Yeah, um, okay. I was really young 
and green and just starting out and just off my uh, I well Brent was just off his mission mm-hmm. closer to the to that than I was I I must have been 20 oh 20 1982 is when we met so I was about I was 26 right yeah and uh I had met Mike Marquardt uh another dear friend of mine or a fellow researcher, a very good researcher himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've been fast friends too, me and Mike Marquardt. And so I went to visit Mike Marquardt. For, I lived in California, Southern California. And, and it was my first historical meeting ever. And it was the MHA, Mormon History Association meeting in Ogden, Utah in 19. 19- I think it, it must have been May, right? Yeah, maybe so it must have been cold right. still, <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. cold. And it was at the Utah State University or yep. Utah State University in Ogden. Um, and Brent came up to me and we started talking. And he said, uh, I remember he said he had read my uh, one of the first articles the first article I wrote uh, in the Journal of Pastoral Practice that my uh, friend Wesley Walters, the Presbyterian minister, Wesley Walters, who was a great researcher also, um, he uh, published an article I wrote responding to Edward Ashment, who was uh, studying to be an Egyptologist, and he was working in the church church, office building as a translator, I believe, in the translation department. Yeah, he was the director of, um, oh God, what they call it? It was like translation and exegesis or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he, he was over that whole thing. Right. Right. So he wrote an article in Sunstone uh, that uh, uh, talked about uh, theory of translation that Joseph Smith translated uh, conceptually that he just had the sort of like B.H. Roberts idea. He had the, Joseph Smith knew the ideas and he had expressed it in the best uh, English he could command. And uh, then I wrote back, uh, I wrote a response saying that the Joseph Smith claimed to have translated word by word, literally from the stone. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was the claim at the time. And, that we shouldn't forget that, more or less. And, and it was a, you know, I was very young, as I say. But Brent wanted to talk to me about it. <laughs> so we sat down and we talked and talked and talked. And we made up, we made a friendship right there and then, I believe. And yeah. um, we also had in common that uh, we were both interested in, but Brent was still uh, an apologist, by the way, yeah. uh, a believer, a very knowledgeable an intelligent believer. <laughs> and mm. and I had started my way out and started writing things, historical uh, things and studying things that I thought needed to be studied that weren't being studied uh, uh, properly or thoroughly as they should be before we start theorizing. And then, um, so Brent um, and I kept up a, a friendship long distance and we saw each other during every time we'd come to utah as i say and we phoned each other a lot we used to phone each other way late at night yeah. uh, like two in the morning i used to be a night owl 
<laughs> writing in the, I would write as late as I could uh, stay awake. And uh, Brent would uh, call, I believe Brent called me from his station as a, as a, a security guard. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, on Temple Square. And so we talked during his shift for hours and, yeah. you know, and then I would sleep in until noon probably. But, uh, <laughs> and I was going to the university at the time. Well, I was probably in the junior college at the first parts, but then I eventually was in the university. And um, so we used to talk real late at night and about everything. So in, yeah. uh, out of all of my friends, Brent is even though we were diametrically opposed when we first met, we we were still, Brent was still probably closest to my sensibilities, my uh, intellectual sensibilities are were very compatible with Brent's. And we probably got close together in thinking because we both read biblical scholarship. He, he liked uh, Raymond Brown, I've never really read that much of Raymond Brown, but we did read lots of Bible commentaries and dictionaries and, uh, you know, the documentary hypothesis and all that we knew about. And uh, rhetorical criticism, form criticism, literary criticism, that's the kind of approach we, we got from biblical scholars that we wanted to apply to the Book of Mormon and other and, and other Mormon scriptures, because we wrote an essay together in this, uh, oh, it was in the Word of God, right? Yes. Yeah, the Word of God, and it was uh, Joseph Smith's scriptural cosmology. Mm -hmm. And the Word of God was uh, 1990, I think it was. And this was this was Brent's, uh, maybe it was your, your first publication besides the seventh east press right exactly <laughs> the seventh exactly. east press you were writing essays on cosmology already right i like that subject too and we were talking about it on the phone a lot and then uh so we pooled our resources together and we wrote up this article on just scriptural cosmology and we published it in the in the Word of God, which was another book that I published in 1990 from Signature Books, in that ser same series as, as the American Apocrypha, the Word of God series, and um, so. And then that's. You have anything to add to that, Brent? Oh no, no. I think I think you've covered a lot of stuff. I I just want to say that. Uh, the the first time my introduction to Dan was actually um, I believe either while I was on my mission right toward the end or right after I got home and the way it happened is is that I had been in contact with a minister who was in Northampton England because we were both in England on our missions. And, and he sent me these letters saying, you know, I've been talking to this young return missionary and, you know, who's kind of losing his faith. And he talked to me about the research that you had done on Freemasonry, right? And the temple 
That was one of the things he brought up. And, and of course, that, that was something I had been doing while I was on my mission. Um, I, because, you know, they had all kinds of books on Freemasonry and exposés on Freemasonry, giving the entire ritual. And, and so I had been buying those while I was on my mission. Me, me too. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I, I talked to John Cuthbert on a fairly regular basis and by talk, I mean, I would call him. While really? I was on my mission, oh, we'd go down to the old red phone booth, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I would call them. The kiosk. I would be putting in coins the entire time, just trying to keep the conversation going. Huh. And then um, I got back from my mission, and I was fully determined to continue doing research and... Um, you know, that's when I first met the Tanners, not long after my mission. It was within a matter of a week or two. I went to their bookstore because I thought I had the potential of answering everything that they had put out. Right? Well, if anybody and, could, you could. Yeah. And and so that, that was my thinking. And we actually had this really cordial and enjoyable conversation when we first met. And so I actually became friends with Gerald and Sandra over time, you know, as well. And, and that was even before I had, you know, kind of gone away from the church. I mean, we, we had started to garner this friendship because of how cordial we were to each other. And then, you know, I had met Mike Marquardt during that time at uh, history conferences and so on. And then, um, and then I meet Dan. And, and what, what attracted me to Dan in our friendship was that we both had this concept of being faithful to the documents and wherever the documents would go that's where we would go and so so i did and and i read so many books on biblical studies and biblical criticism during that time um i worked in like dan said i worked in the church security unit that was basically the equivalent of, you know, being the dispatch where, you know, we were the ones in contact with all the security officers saying, we've got something that needs to be taken care of here or here or here and so on. And Mike uh, Norton's videoing the endowment again. What's that? Mike Norton's video videoing the endowment again. No, no, no. That that's that's way after my time. Okay. So yeah, that's handle that's code three. <laughs> I, I I was gone. I was gone from there by um, April of 1983 is when I was uh, forced to resign. And so, um, in in all of those conversations with Dan, 
um, you know, that was the thing that I think bound us together in commonality. It wasn't necessarily an ideological connection at the time, because like Dan said, I was an apologist still. And, and I was, but I, I recognized in Dan this desire to have this fidelity toward the manuscripts and to treat them literally almost as sacred objects, if you will, that they are things that you stay true to, you don't misrepresent ever, and you try and get as much clarity from them as you can. And so when, when I worked at church security, I had a goal because I, I was on a graveyard shift as well for the longest time where you would work 12 hour shifts. And um, I had a goal to, to read at least one book a day. And I'd read multiple. Wait, wait a second. One book a day? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd read numerous articles beside that. Right. And I just buried myself in every piece of information I could get. And so um, I guess instead of having the, the traditional path of education, I became completely immersed in um, just wanting to understand how these critical scholars work and how they think. And I think that Dan and I shared that love and it comes through. You can see it in Dan's works and hopefully you can see it in mine as well. Well, I think that's really, really good. I love the conversation that you both are having. The main point that I've taken out of the last half hour is that Brent got a paycheck from the church for talking to an apostate while on the job. <laughs> <laughs> and I support that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, uh, talking about, in, in fact, I should say, talking about Dan's uh, late night hour conversations with me, which they were very late at night, because like I said, I, I was on the graveyard shift. So even when I was off, I would be awake all night. You know, I didn't sleep. And so Dan and I would be on there. And I remember that he was sending me drafts of his book, Indian Origins on the, and the Book of Mormon. And, and I still have like four of them in my boxes of files for the drafts because he sent me numerous drafts. And we went over them and over them. And that's that's when, you know, I was discovering things like uh, writers like Mordecai, Manuel, Noah, Manasseh ben Israel, James Adair, and all yeah. these different early 19th century writers. And um, that's when it, it things started to click for me. And um, they start, everything started to fall into place. Now, I will say that it's not the historical issues that led me in another direction as far as my faith goes. It was definitely the experiential 
issues that did that my faith experiential problem was far greater than any of the historical issues that could ever be brought up. And um, so, I mean, I was fully prepared, for example, and, and this is going back to, you know, the early 1980s and mid 1980s, I was fully prepared to believe that the Book of Mormon was not an ancient text, who was still inspired by God. That's where I had come to with almost all of Joseph Smith's scriptural products, because that's what made sense to me. That's how I put all this together. And I looked at the documents and said, this is what it supports most. And so I was prepared to go fully in that direction. And but it was life's experiences that shattered all that for me. It's like I've said before, well, on one occasion, I had a stake president uh, unexpectedly drop by my house. This was in the mid 80s. And he came with the entire stake presidency. I had never met any of these men before. And I was a Sunday school teacher in the ward, or had been. And he said, he came in and he said, Brother Metcalf, we're concerned about your testimony. And he said, can, can you tell me, do you believe that Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet of God? And I said to him, well, First, I'd have to believe that there's a God. You know, and I just said it, it just came flowing right out of my mouth. And and they were completely dumbfounded. And I said, I, I'm not going to beat around the bush with you on this. You know, but this is where my life has landed me. And... I, I'm going to be as honest as I can with you and as candid as I can with you. It's like, if they're going to ask the question, I'm going to give the answer. And that's kind of what happened. And I think that they were absolutely astonished at what I said. But they were also very nice. In fact, um, the state president called up my dad right after that. And because my dad was managing director of temples for the LDS church. So basically the COO of all the temples throughout the world. And he called my dad and he said, I want you to know that I don't think I have ever met a more honest young man in my life. This is what he's telling my dad, right? Oh. And then it was just a matter of days later that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve came to my dad and said, um, a letter just came in from Brent Stake President saying that they wanted to hold a church court on him to have him excommunicated. And my dad was incensed. It was like, how dare you call me 
and say that about my son and then go and try and excommunicate him right after you've talked to me. And anyway, it ended up getting completely nixed by uh, the first presidency. They just said, you're going to stop this. Don't ever try and contact him again. And they just cut the thing right off. And it's mainly because of my dad's position, you know? And so they told him, don't, don't ever bring this up again. And that was the end of it. So very, very odd experience. But anyway, well, two thoughts yeah. that I have. Number one, it's good to know that the top church leadership is not involved in disciplinary councils on a local level. Okay. Number two, <laughs> number two is that I don't know why you're being so honest, Brent. Don't you understand that you're only supposed to be as transparent as you know how to be? Right, right. And the thing is, is that I I felt like I had no other way to approach it. I think that Dan's been the exact same way. He's been extremely honest in how he feels about history about his beliefs and and completely unshy about saying so and i think that that's just a credit to to dan um and like i said that's what really drew us together was our our commitment to you know digging down and finding out what the history actually says and not trying to have us dictate to the history what it should be saying. Yeah. Well, I think it, we were uh, excited to learn these things just to learn them. Oh, very. It, it was a discovery to yes. us, and that's what drove us. I mean, it would do us no good just to argue against apologists or whatever. We really wanted to know what happened or yes. what the text really says, or what how the ear earliest Mormons read those texts. Exactly. And and that's what excited us. We, the Trying to debate with the apologists is, where it was a secondary interest at right. best, you know? Right. So... Right. Um, no, for, no, no, we've both been sucked into that on more than one occasion where we have gone gotten caught up in debates with apologists yeah. and well, now we've gone through phases uh you know in our development we probably spent exactly. a little bit too much time online yeah exactly <laughs> and not doing the, the re research uh, where you really learn something but um i usually try to uh learn from whatever experience I, i'm having i i learned a lot during each of those phases anyway and yeah. Um, for me, it was, uh, it's, uh, I learn about them and you could try to hold their worldview in your mind as you're, as you're researching. So it kind of keeps you honest in a way, you know? Right. Right. Um, so I don't mind, I, I, I'm not agitated by, uh, apologists or like our friend Dan Peterson. <laughs> right, right. Or Bill, the late Bill Hamlin. Um, right. 
I learn from them as much as I learn. And if I stop learning, usually uh, I'll move on to something else. But, <laughs> but you know, I try to learn as much as I can where, wherever I'm at and whatever I'm doing um, and incorporate it into to my worldview, myself. And to me, it's all it's all the jumble and mix of it all is very important to to uh, on the co the course I'm going on. Well, I'll tell you, we have some photographs that we want to put up on the screen one at a time and get your comments on each one. Maven, do you have that ready? <laughs> <laughs> This is me getting my award from Brian Hales, the president of uh, John Whitmer Historical Association at that time. This is the this is the award I got for the eight volume history of Joseph Smith and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Does Brian Hales not know who you are? It looks like he's shaking your hand. Yeah, he's shaking my hand. But isn't he supposed to decline to shake hands with you? Uh, well, by doing that, <laughs> I would still make sure whether he was a good or a bad angel. Yes. Okay. But this is for a book. It's a, I can see it right there. It says best book. It's an award. It's in a nice frame. And what book is that for that you're getting the award? That, that's the, the eight volume uh, history of the church. Oh, my gosh. For that. Which, uh, which by the way, Dan. Is it a, a source? and text critical analysis of of the history of the church by the so way dan about 10 years we've got a copy of that at the family pawn and hurricane uh, all seven volumes eight nice you got uh -oh. you got cheated out of one volume oh i'm sorry it maybe it is eight it's eight but we've got the whole set what's it going for it's it's out of print yeah it's like 300 bucks or something 400 bucks well, more like a thousand yeah, originally. Yeah, I don't know if these are used or right now. Does that include yeah. shipping? You would generally just stop in the show in the store and get them, but yeah, they're just in our display case in our Mormon museum case. Oh yeah, I'll I'll send a picture to you guys tomorrow of them. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Okay. That I, I, I think you've done right a hell of a good job with bucks. Well, yeah, I don't know I, what price they are, but sure. I I, I, <laughs> just, have, I just have to say that. Uh, I've got, I think, three full sets here <laughs> at the house. So. Damn it. You outdid me. Yeah. Because, well, well, yeah. You, you can never have too many, right? Will you let one of them go for 250 No. no. <laughs> well, by the way, it's online, I think. Uh, at, it is. Yeah. Um, Archive.org. Archive.org. Yeah. I've actually been there. So signature, well, Smith Pettit, the Smith Pettit Foundation, right. who sponsored that research and writing, uh, want it available to the masses. And there you are for free. And yeah, they paid a lot to have it um, to have the research and writing of it. You know, they invested a lot of money, and so everybody should be uh, happiest there. But it's. Uh, I wanted to know all the sources as much as possible. I didn't get all the sources I asked for. They, this, the Joe Smith Papers people stepped in the way of my getting to the Clayton Diaries, but um, so which I wanted 
to get because the history of the church quotes it in in a few places. Um, but uh, I a but they're lot not of, hiding anything. They're not uh, hiding. You know, they're not hiding any history. Nothing's being yeah. hidden. You can't. You can have it all. Yeah. Well, eventually, <laughs> eventually, I, I we'll, we'll probably get what more of the things that we want. But a lot of the stuff I asked for wasn't uh, cataloged even. And so in some of the archivists went as the extra mile. Sometimes they drug their feet a little bit. Um, so, but I'm thankful for whatever help I can get. And I, and I would tell them, you know, this isn't for me, this is for future generations. And um, so you're not doing anything to me. You're, you're uh, hampering maybe the scholar, you know, the better, or best scholarship we can possibly produce isn't all that touchy, but um, so I wanted to know the sources behind it. What was left out? What was, where, where'd they get this stuff? And, and, and for the most part, there wasn't a lot of tricky stuff happening, but um, you know, some of the sermons of Joseph Smith are, are amalgamations of a bunch of notes and, you know, they put it together and it's not really how Justin delivered this sermon, but you can get the gist of, yeah. Sometimes you can see all several versions being weaved in right after each other and kind of in a repetitive way. But, um, so I was happy to study the history of the church for about 10 years. Like I said, Oh, is it? There's, me There's another Carrie. picture up there. Before or we get to that me picture, the backyard Brent, professor, excuse me. I know that's such a great picture. I just want to ask Brent before we get to that picture, but you can leave it up. Brent, have you had the same luck and success that Dan has had in being allowed access to the church archives? Uh, well, uh, no, and, <laughs> and and the the reason for that is that I was banned from the, the church archives from 1986 until I want to say around 2015 or so, um, maybe, yeah, within a year or two of that. And, and then the ban was lifted and, and it was lifted in the most, um, how can I put it? The, the the most spectacular way because they actually gave me access to all of the book of abraham manuscripts and all the manuscripts from joseph smith's egyptian project so i had all the originals sitting right there in front of me on the table and i had a jeweler's loop so that i could go through them and analyze all of the um, the portions of the text that had been written over or erased underneath and then written over. And um, that was an incredible experience. I mean, I've described it before as if um, you ever had a Moses on Mount Sinai experience and a very almost sacred experience with documents that would probably be at the pinnacle of them. Though I also have had the opportunity since then 
to also analyze and the uh, Church of Christ archives, all the manuscripts to the new translation, as well as the printer's manuscript before it was sold to the church. And so, uh, you know, I, I've been very fortunate in that regard that despite being banned for all those years, I've found ways to, to get access to different documents over time. And now I have, you know, full access to the historical archives. And um, I'm happy with that. So I, I, you know, it's one thing that you want. Whenever I go to visit Utah, on most occasions, I try and uh, go to the archives and see what they've got. I go into the library, see what they have there. And um, it's, it's a whole nother experience when you see the actual documents that were penned by these people in the 19th century. And you're looking at this slice of history that is just incredible. Well, we have to go back to Dan now because we've got this photo up there of you some time ago with a rather dastardly looking person that you're about <laughs> to throttle by the neck. <laughs> Me and Lord Carey. As Lord Carey. He used to be called that online. Remember that, Carey? <laughs> Thank uh. you, my professor. Remember that? Um, he was quite the apologist. Yes, he was. Did he have the Book one of, of those... Abraham? Yes. Yeah. He was the Book of Abraham specialist. Where yeah. and when was this photo taken? Uh, this is the University of Utah, uh, Salt Lake City at Sunstone. And uh, I put the year when I sent it to you, but um, 2016, I don't know. <laughs> You can ballpark it. I'm not going to check you. This is pre-beard. For you or for Carrie? Yeah. Did, does he have a beard now? Yeah. Oh, I guess he does. I'm sorry. I just tipped my hand that I haven't watched any of his videos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. Look who's joined us. It's the Emeritus 70, Timothy Dykes, who was formerly the... Uh, one of the heads of the Strengthening Church Members Committee that I had the pleasure of talking to on the phone and finding out that uh, he seems to have a file on a person, at least he thinks, is Radio Free Mormon, but I was unable to confirm or deny. What's, that's that uh, what's hilarious, RFM, is that uh, you um, gave out the phone number for the Strengthening Church Members Committee in your episode, and that day there were hundreds of calls to the church office building, to the Strengthening Church Members Committee, and they had to eventually just have the secretary uh, stop answering the phone. <laughs> I know. I feel like George Costanza when he's asked by his boss if he had sex with the cleaning lady. <laughs> Was that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many fun adventures. Anyway, keep going, guys. I'm having a blast. Yes. I'm sorry we have to leave this photo, but next photo. Ooh, ooh. Sorry, Maven. I was trying to jump in. Oh, there we are. And there you are, Dan, with uh, Carrie a few years later. 
Sherry today. We grow his beard. Yeah. That's what yeah. it looks like when he shaves his mustache. Show. Yeah. That looks like um, it might have been at the same Sunstone Symposium. It's me and Richard Bushman. Oh, it's now, Richard Bushman. Okay. The patriarch. Does, does the he patriarch? own a different jacket and shirt? Because that jacket and shirt, he's in that one for everything, isn't he? I'm just, I'm just, I'm sorry. He's like Einstein. He has seven. Professors are, you know. He's like Einstein. He has seven suits that are all the same with the same tie and the same shirt. So he doesn't have to spend any extra brain power picking out his clothes for the day. Gotcha. (laughs) No, Richard Bushman's a really nice saint, I would say. A great patriarch. And uh, he, he, uh, he tries to be as honest as he can, and he's honest about not being able to uh, answer or is letting, allowing his mind to go to certain areas. But I think he uh, makes a real heroic effort to be honest. And, you know, uh, even though uh, we both wrote, he wrote a whole biography, you know, and he had help uh, from some other I forget his name right off, but um, wait a second. You're talking about Rough Stone Rolling came out in 2005. You said he had some help, and you say I don't know who is that. Is, does that mean you helped? No, no, it's, no. It, 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 hey Dan, it's the uh, co-author of that small volume yeah, that he yeah. wrote. Do you remember that? I knew we were going to lose that, Dan at some that's point. Who it is. <laughs> It's it's whomever the the co-author was of that work. Oh, uh, with a former state president too, right? You guys say that Bushman, not only oh, a patriot, for, state, state president, president. I mean, I mean, what do you expect? But, yeah, yeah be the church patriarch. Woodworth anyway. with Jed Woodworth. Yes, it's sort go. of like Ryan Hills in in the next photo. Um, uh. <laughs> Don Bradley, Don Bradley. Um, but uh, Bushman, I, I, I'm going to tell a little story about me and Bushman. I mean, Bushman has had training in uh, psychology. His is more Freudian psychology, though. And he wrote a, bi- a psychobiography, actually, of Benjamin Franklin. So uh, he knows the psychology stuff. And he came out with uh, the fam. Uh, for me, it's family dynamics, you know. And fa- the f- uh, family systems theory is uh, uh, more like uh, Walker or the guy, the other guy. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to read his uh, name from here. But um, I like your hair gel, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so. Um, there's another Mormon guy that writes about the Smith family that has had training in, in psychology. And, and that was my more or less minor at the university. Um, plus I've had uh, real life experience in my own psycho, my own therapy. So, um, and I read a lot on family systems theory. And I, so I wrote, I've written a little bit about the Smith family and family dynamics and, um, and, uh, Richard Bushman came out with the same kind of formula as I did that Joe Smith was really trying to appeal to his father and convert his father. And um, so 
he, I, I did give a presentation at the Mormon History Association meeting in um, Vermont, I think it was, and uh, where I critiqued his book, said it was from a believer's point of view, and uh, written not in trying to um, give the warts necessarily, <laughs> you know, and so w Richard Bushman came up to me and he's, and this is a little altercation we had. And it was, he said, well, it must be nice being so callous. Speaking of me, because I, I wrote my biography of Joe Smith and, and I guess he thought it was a little too um, blunt or uh, edgy or, critical of Joseph Smith and but my response was well I, I wrote the book I wanted to write <laughs> that was my little jab back at him anyway I thought you might enjoy yeah. that little anecdote absolutely enjoyed it very much I think you got the best <laughs> of that exchange <laughs> well he didn't say anything after that was but that after this photo was taken we bet it was before I believe oh yeah. So we've been cordial, pretty cordial. We've seen each other several times at various meetings and we're pretty cordial. But, I, you know, I, I don't try to come down on him or anything. I think he did the best job he could. He did a, His biography is really a, a, a good addition and a benefit to Mormon, uh, the Mormon scholarly community. Yeah. And you yeah. said he's as honest as he can be. Sometimes he's more honest than he should be. And he has to walk certain statements back. Yeah, well, that's one of the ironies is that a lot of people think his book is an anti-Mormon book. Right, right. <laughs> so well, I think it's led a lot of people out of the church. Yeah, so, well, you know, he's had his problems with his book. So, uh, but I feel good about mine and uh, I'm sure he feels good about him. Yeah, and the thing is, is that I think a lot of people sometimes don't get this, that Richard is really a believer. I mean, I only met Richard, um, I want to say maybe four years ago for the first time, and we ended up speaking about an hour and an hour and a half to each other, and the only reason why we broke off that conversation is because I had to go sit at a different table because I was on the awards committee at the JWHA at the time. And um, Richard was very nice to me, but in my conversation, it was abundantly clear that at his core, he is a believer. And, and the reason why I say that is because you, you all have probably had this experience before when you actually talk to a believer and they talk to you as if you are a believer. And that's how the conversation proceeds, as if somehow you're agreeing with them. And so our conversation kind of went down the path of, um, you know, it's in in his mind that Joseph Smith had all of these things that provided the catalyst for various revelations and so on that he got. 
So the papyri, the catalyst for the book of Abraham, even though it didn't come from the papyri, right? And and he's going down this whole litany of items. And I actually mentioned, so you're saying like the temple ceremony and Freemasonry. And he was like, yes, exactly like that. And, and so he, he, when people talk about him online and are wondering, you know, like, is he even a believer, you know, and stuff like this? And I, I think ex-Mormons want to hope he is. And Mormons want to, to think he could be. And that's why we can label him anti-Mormon. And the fact of the matter is, is that Richard's a believer. End of the story. It's how he holds his conversations. And it's who he is. It's in his genetic makeup almost as, as a scholar. It's who he is. Brent, it occurs to me as you're talking that Richard Bushman may be the kind of scholar that you envisioned yourself as becoming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, even uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner described me once in one of their uh, publications is that when they, they when they first met me, the first few times that they met me, they thought that oh my God, this kid's going to become the next Hugh Nibley, right? I mean, that that's what they, they wrote in their publication, that I was going to be that person who was just going to take on all of this stuff head on. And, um, you know, life, life had other plans. Yeah. And so, you know, here we are. And... I mean, I don't regret the path that I've ended up going down by any means. I think any more than Dan does, right? I don't regret it. And and the, the fact of the matter no, is... I, I have no regrets about how I proceeded to do it because I've enjoyed every minute of it. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and, and pe people will ask me, and I, I think that Dan can absolutely relate to this, why on earth do you still want to research Mormonism when <laughs> yeah. you're not a believer? And I just I just tell him, if you have never felt the exhilaration of looking at an original manuscript document and discovering something that you and possibly nobody else has ever noticed before, then no, you can't understand why i do this because that's why it's for history's sake not that i'm trying to prove something to someone else you know that no you should not believe you know because of this or that it's simply because i relish the history if it hadn't have been mormonism if i hadn't have grown up with mormonism it probably would have ended up being something like Shakespearean studies or, um, you know, the history of Freemasonry and going through their manuscripts. But the idea of handling those manuscripts and treating them, as I said, like sacred documents and relishing the fact that these come from an earlier time if you don't understand what that feeling is like, then you won't understand folks like Dan and I. 
At least that's my take, Dan. <laughs> Here's yeah. where we. Are. I'm sorry, Dan. Did you want to add something to that? No, I was just going to say my probably my uh, most exhilarating discovery uh, at the moment, anyway. It was probably it wasn't the largest uh, thing, but it was the property records and uh, court case down in in um, Harmony, Pennsylvania. Uh, that I knew nobody had seen before. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, the original documents are real, you know, in the courthouse in Montrose, I went to the courthouse in Montrose in the attic, all these papers were just sit, sitting there. And it was the summertime, it was hot, the windows were open up in, in the attic and I was roaming around that they just let me roam around in there. And I just, and, and I found these records of Joseph Smith uh, and it, it it wasn't like uh, Wesley Walters discovering the 1826 trial records or anything, but it shed a whole uh, another light in an area that we didn't know very much about. And it's in, in volume four of the early Mormon documents. Right. So, uh, but um, that was exciting. That was an exciting moment, you know, um, photographing it, put them on the windowsill and photographing them and things like that. Um, and just the, the, the tax records were just, the little books were sitting on the shelf and I just took them off and there, there's just Smith's name. It was very exciting for me anyway. Well, yeah. that is exciting. I have to ask you, Dan, uh, did you leave those documents there or did you take them with you when you left? <laughs> <laughs> I left them there, but you know, I had photo, had photographs of them and, and uh, I came back another time and they were still there. And and I think the Joseph Smith papers, people found them, and they're in, in the Joseph Smith papers. Well, good. Sorry, a little Wesley Walters humor there, folks. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I know you two got it, and I think that maybe some in the audience probably got it, too. Um, now, I wasn't just accusing you of being a, th a thief for no reason. Um, <laughs> we are over the hour and I think our audience would love to hear more and more from you. But I know that there is a certain story that involves Brent and an acrostic uh, from 1993 that I would like for him to be able to tell. And after that, open up the line for callers to call in and ask any questions that they might have of the two of you. Are you ready to tell that story? And can you keep it to five minutes? Uh, I'll, ke I'll keep it short. I'm kidding. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah. You take okay, whatever time I'll, you want. We're glad I'll to have try you. I'll keep it as, as short as I can. Um, basically, um, I had heard rumors that were coming from students of, of Bill Hamlin. And if I remember correctly, I want to say that one of them may have told Gary Bergera about this, that uh, Bill Hamlin had written this paper that was six pages long and it was called Vogel and Met or Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf are the Beavis and Butthead of Mormon studies. And and so and and the citation for the journal that this was published in was the journal of Beavis and Butthead studies, right? <laughs> And and so over the next six pages, um, that line was simply repeated throughout, and every time was footnote 
to this Journal of Beavis and Butthead Studies, right? And this goes on for six pages. Well, then, then, then I, what was that? I'm sorry. I have to ask you the same question I asked you the first time you told me the story because I could not wrap my head around it. You're saying that there's a six page paper that has the same sentence with the same footnote repeated over and over and over again for six pages and nothing else. Correct. Correct. It's like uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it totally is. And and I thought it was kind of crazy. It wasn't until years and years later that I actually got a copy of it from a friend who had, you know, he's a bibliophile who collects uh, rare Mormon books and specifically very rare modern Mormon books. And this was one of the documents that he had purchased from someone. And so that's the first time that I actually saw the document for real. And um, essentially what happened after that is that I heard a rumor that Bill Hamlin was going to include a, an acrostic in his publication in the review of book uh, uh, review of books on the Book of Mormon that had that entire line that Bogle and Metcalf are the Beavis and Butthead of Mormon studies as an acrostic throughout the whole article. Well, as it turns out, Bill Hamlin evidently did not have time enough to put the entire acrostic in. And so what ended up getting put in is the acrostic Metcalf is butthead. And so I remember when I when I heard this, I called up my good friend Scott Fallring, who worked who worked for farms. And he was a good friend of mine. And I said, Hey, did you get your early copy of the review? And he said, Yeah, I've got it right here. And I said, I want you to start reading off the first letter in each paragraph. And he starts reading it off, and it was like M-E. And then at some point he stumbles, and I, and I said, wait a second, is that a quotation? And he goes, yeah, it's an indented quotation, right? Because this is an article you haven't even seen. You've just no. heard about right? No, just heard about it. And I said, skip the quotation and read the next letter. And he started reading down every letter and it spelled out Metcalf is butthead. And by the way, we have this on the screen now. Right. And so I'll tell you more about that in just a second, how I ended up coming by that. So what happened is, is the Scott Fullring called Brent Hall who was the office manager for farms and said, you're not going to believe what's in this journal. And because Scott was mortified, right? That this had happened. And Brent Hall was just in shock. And he said, oh my God, we have to take care of this and take care of it now. So they recalled the, the volumes that they could 
And because keep in mind, they had stacks of these already to be mailed out. In fact, I'll tell you more about that in a second. And they had stacks of these ready to mail out. They tore off, ripped off the covers to all of them, reprinted a couple of the pages to obscure the acrostic, and then rebound them with the new covers on. And then those are the ones that got sent out. And that's the copy that I happen to have, is the one with the acrostic obscured. Well, Kurt Bench at Benchmark Books called me up one day and said, you're not going to believe what I'm holding in my hands. And I said, what? He said, I've got the pre-edited version of the review of books. And it's got the entire acrostic in it. And I said, you're kidding me. And so he let me go in and photograph all of the pages that have the acrostic on it. And that's what you're seeing on the screen right now. And um, he actually purchased it, interestingly enough, from a woman who lived in California. Because evidently, even though, you know, Peterson and others claimed that the book was never distributed, in fact, it had begun to be distributed. And so a few people that were out there had already been receiving them in the mail. And it's this person who sold this book to, to Kurt Bench. And he bought it from her. And so that's how I got this. And it was the first time I had ever seen the full acrostic in person. And I, you know, I, I think that my friend, Mike Quinn, put it best when he said, doing something like this in a thing that pretends to be a scholarly journal is simply turning a so-called scholarly journal into a bathroom wall, the scrawlings on a bathroom wall. Yeah, very good. And, very, I like that quote. You know, he's spot on. I mean, who does this? Could you imagine seeing this in the Journal of Biblical Literature? Heavens no. It wouldn't even be a thought that this could ever happen in something like that. And quite frankly, the thing that made me so offended by it is that I, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. My family immigrated from New Zealand when I was very young. Uh, we go back generations there. And so my last name has meant so much to me because it's also shared by my brother, my dad, and my mom. And I just felt like this is so bloody offensive to me because this is a name. We were alone when we came to this country. And so I wasn't offended because it was directed at me. I was offended because it made no distinction between my last name and who I am. And, you know, it, I found that especially offensive. Well, after that, Bill Hamlin actually sent me an apology. Well, that was nice of him. For doing it. 
Well, kind of. Because, because right after that, at the farm sport meeting, he shows up sporting a Beavis and Butthead t-shirt. So that he could just show just how funny he had been. And how sorry he was, too, apparently. Exactly. And it's kind of like, I, you know, I, I just didn't believe him at that point at all. The, he had no sincerity. About, Can I make a couple of points I, here? I think he was probably told to make the apology. Probably. I just wanted to point out that uh, William Hamblin, who passed away uh, either last year or the year before, and of course, condolences to his family, um, was a chief apologist for farms. He was very good friends with Daniel C. Peterson, and Daniel C. Peterson was the editor of the Review of Books on the Book of Mormon, or as Dan Peterson liked to call it, the Robot Bomb. Mm -hmm. Hey, wait, that's an acrostic too. <laughs> wait, I think I'm getting where this idea came from. Um, but... He was the editor. Bill Hamblin, who wrote the article with the acrostic, was his friend. Did Dan Peterson ever cop to having been a part of this, knowing about it, to you, Brent? What, what he ended up saying was that, and that he and Bill would put things that were funny things, you know, in papers that they would write all the time. There would be jokes to each of them right and so he just kind of laughed it off but but the fact of the matter is he fully knew about this and he knew it was going into print i mean is, there, is it true that he denied it going into print for the longest time yeah he denied it being distributed he said yes it it was printed but it was not distributed and that's when finally, you know, after I got these images, I actually posted them on the the fair, you know, message board that that's was the fair message board at the time. And I posted all the images and said, no, it was distributed. This came from one of your subscribers in California. And then it, he was just almost at a loss words, stumbling over himself to explain that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that he knew it was in there and had every intent of having it distributed. And that's just a fact of the matter. So, right. And my take yeah. on it is, of course, they went to all this trouble to insert this clever acrostic in an article that nobody would ever notice or see was there right. simply through reading the article. It's not like it's appearing directly in a, uh, a line down one page where you could possibly read it. Instead, right. it's the first letter of each succeeding paragraph and nobody who's not looking for it and who would be looking for it, nobody's not looking for it would ever see it unless they were in on the joke. Right. And the problem, the problem was that that Bill Hamlin was bragging about it to his students, and that's that's how word first got out. And so it's like if you're going to do something that you want to be 
think is a clever inside joke you probably shouldn't tell anyone right you know and this is good that, advice for a lot of murderers too yeah Just fyi yeah he, he couldn't resist yeah and so there it is there it is in beautiful black and white and red yeah yep all right. Well, thank you for sharing that story. This is great. By the way, there is one special picture of Dan Vogel that we have that I do want to make sure that we put up on the screen so Dan can comment on it. Do you have that, Maven? If you know what I'm talking about. Hi, Sodas. Yo. Let me see if I can't change it here. That one? There it is. Right. First no. <laughs> Who's <is> this? <laughs> Who's that? Nobody knows who this is. Looks like a general authority. I'm talking about Dan when he was much, <laughs> much younger. With his brother. Oh, that's a wonderful. Oh, that one? Uh, yes, hopefully we'll get it up here in a second. I don't have to actually describe it to get it up here. Who, but Sorry, it'll, it'll take me a second. It's okay, Maven. You take a second. Uh, I, that's I'm still wondering where this one came from. And right next to it, put that one from the Sacred Grove. Sacred Grove. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's that's not going to happen. We've had a huge discussion. No, it's not why we were late starting is because we were having an argument about whether we would show one of the pictures. Brent says, no, we're not showing that picture. And we said, OK, Brent gets his way. Yeah. <laughs> it involved a toga and a big fire. And so exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Okay, well, I tell you what, uh, while we're waiting for that picture, if everybody could start calling in, I don't know, maybe all of our seven lines are full, Bill. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got some phone lines, so we can do that. Let me start off then, uh, turning up this, and let's well, see if this works. I can tell uh, you what this photo is. Oh, it wouldn't do it justice, no matter how good your description. <laughs> 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 we'll wait it out. Uh, we can take a call and then, and then we'll put that up when we got it. Uh, this is Matt. Um, Matt, let's see if this works right. Matt, you're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon, Bill Real, Dan Vogel, and Brent Metcalf. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, there it is. Nice. Hey, every hey everyone. Glad to hear from you. Uh, big fan of you guys' show. Uh, my question is, is concerning uh, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and compared to uh, Dan's early uh, Mormon documents, is there a difference uh, in the do in the documentation that's covered as well as the content? I'm just curious because I'm trying to do some more research. Yes, there, there is a difference. And the Joseph Smith Papers Project is focused on the papers produced by or about Joseph Smith uh, that he had control of basically. And my collection collects everything uh, anti-Mormon, Mormon, uh, good, the newspapers, good stuff, bad stuff. Um, it has just about everything, but it only goes up to 1831. Uh, it's the New York, the, you know, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania period of Joseph Smith's life. So we called it early Mormon documents, but it, it, it ends at 1831. And then I wrote the biography for the same period. So, and, and now I've gone beyond that. So I hope to get to Nauvoo. But 
Yeah, uh, early Mormon documents is uh, uh, has a lot of documents in it that you won't find in the Joseph Smith Papers collection, and my and they have a lot after 1831 that I, of course, don't have in my five volume collection. Very good. Thank you for that, Dan, and thanks for oh, that both, phone call. Both and both are very now. useful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call, my Thank friend. Thank you. Now to the important stuff. What's with this photo? <laughs> oh, okay. That's me and my brother in our uh, judo geese. Judo. Now, now, Britt and I have this uh, running thing on. Who's the biggest fan of Bruce Lee? <laughs> and, you know, of course, it's me. <laughs> no. no. We, we Because I'm older. I'm Lee. older. And I, and, I started my, <laughs> and I started my Bruce Lee uh you know, addiction very young. And uh so here here's mine. Here's mine. I have it like right here. This is what? my this is my uh autograph. You can't see it because it's in pencil. That's all my dad had was a pencil with him and a piece of paper. And I and my brother and I went up to Bruce Lee and uh we I should say we went to the Long Beach international karate tournament in 1969 and we were there watching chuck norris and joe lewis fight for the uh, title that was at the night and that's when bruce lee showed up we we only cared about bruce lee and getting his autograph even though he was sitting next to steve mcqueen (laughs) (laughs) and robert culp oh my gosh I spy fame, you know, with, yes. you know, Bill Cosby. Remember the, those shows? Well, so um, my, well, my dad got us interested. Uh, it, it wasn't just Bruce Lee uh, as Cato and the Green Hornet on TV. My dad uh, happened, uh, he got, he went to the Korean War. He went to Japan at the end of World War II. And then he went to Korea during the Korean War. And he was an MP. And as a, a sergeant, MP, and he studied martial arts there, uh, sort of like Chuck Norris. And then when he came home, when Bruce Lee came on TV and was doing his uh, Jeet Kune Do, Kung Fu, Tai Chi or whatever, he um, <laughs> he got re-energized uh, uh, about martial arts. And he started taking uh, Kempo Karate at, at Ed Parker Studio. Ah, yes. And um, Ed was LDS, by the way. Yes. Yeah. And Ed Parker, Kimpo or Hawaiian. Right. Karate. (laughs) And uh, so my dad went, my dad actually went to the Long Beach uh, International Karate Tournament in 68 when Bruce Lee gave an exhibition. And you can see it on YouTube. They, They taped it really nice uh, images of Bruce Lee doing demonstrations. And then we went the following year. We went the following year, my brother and I, with my dad, and then we saw Bruce Lee. He didn't give any exhibitions that year, but he he was there, uh, and we followed him around. (laughs) Wherever he went, we went. (laughs) My brother and I just followed him around, and then we asked him for his autograph, and he gave gave us his autograph. That's very nice. Anything to get rid of you kids. Uh, Well, well, so my how we got into judo was that my dad uh, 
had a Japanese friend from because he worked at the uh, Long Beach Naval Shipyard and he worked with this Japanese friend and his son went to this judo dojo. And so my dad says, well, you guys are going to go there, too. My dad would sit with his Japanese friend and talk and stuff while we were on the mat getting thrown around. All <laughs> we some of the some of the people training us were, you know, in Black Belt magazine and stuff like that. And our our sensei, the main sensei was uh, like a, he must have been 75, 80 years old. He had a red and white belt. And he used to throw us around like we were nothing. So uh, quite impressive. Very impressive. Dan, did you see what Brent was holding up to the screen there a few minutes ago? Yes. Yes, Bruce Lee. What is that, Brent? It's a, it's a photo of Bruce Lee that it, that's from a movie set. And it's got a Bruce Lee plaque underneath it. And then I also have to show you my my pops of the Green Hornet and Cato right here, right? That Bruce Lee was on. And so I'm out Bruce Lee and Dan tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your kung fu is very uh, strong. Well, yeah. I, I mean, the, the Green Hornet and Cato, I absolutely relished when I was a kid. And then Longstreet. Right, Bruce Lee was on that. Oh, right, with James yeah. Franciscus. Exactly. I can't believe I remembered that. That was on yeah. for like one season. Yes, yes. Right. And, and I would watch every show of any of these just to see him. And then, of oh, course, yeah. when, when the dragon came out, I went and saw that right off. And and so, yeah, so that's something else that Dan and I have in common is that we're both. We didn't know that until recently, yeah. though. Yeah, exactly. That we're we never both brought it up. Exactly. I know. Did I referred I, to you. Do I have about I a week ago? I referred to you using the nunchucks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you used I, to do the nunchucks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. But somehow we never talked about it back then. Yeah. That yeah. comes for the brain injury. <laughs> yeah no i got a bunch of i got a bunch of magazines from uh england when i was in england I, they were all over the place because they were bruce lee crazy in england when i was there that is and, awesome uh, that jeep jeep kundo that was actually uh bruce wait, Lee's form of martial yeah. arts that he created himself right yes yeah exactly. he was originally a, a wing right. chung wing chung with ip ip man. right yeah, Ip Man. Yeah. Ip Man. There's a big movie about him, and it, a lot. Of, he was quite the Ip Man movies. I, I, were th quite, I think there are four of them now. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen any of them really. I just yeah, they're, they're it's in pieces good. on YouTube. Yeah, they're they're pretty good actually. Well, I I had actually uh, referred to you both about a week ago when we were talking and setting up for tonight's show. Uh, referred to you as the Batman and Robin of Mormon studies. And immediately, one of you uh, wrote did. back and said, no, not not Batman and Robin, Cato and the Green Hornet. Cato. And then you both got in a rather heated discussion about <laughs> who would be Cato and who would be the Green Hornet. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> because, because we'd never agree on who. I could still do a sidekick, Grant. Yeah. I could still do a sidekick. Can you? Y yes. No, you can't. <laughs> yes, <I> can. 
How about well, a roundhouse? Vince just had don't, hip don't, surgery. Don't, don't make it's me right. demonstrate it's, that right just now. Had hip surgery. I'm here, so. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, what I want to know is, were you kicking from the hip, and are you into a brand new trip? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I I ran that one right past Dan. Yeah. I, uh, what anyway, am I doing, Brent? Part, what am I doing? Part, this was part of my, uh, my part of my childhood, as you can see. The other part was magic with that uh, RFM and I have in common. Magic was my other hobby before, no, after the martial arts. In high school and on my mission, I was known as the mission magician. I like it. Yeah. And I would do the linking rings and things like that. Yes, a Chinese trick. Yeah. I, I know another magician. There's the another magician ropes. among us. The three rope. Is there? Yes, the guy the guy to your my right on the screen was an amateur magician as well. Yeah, I know. RFM, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, me, RFM. we're talking about me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I missed the part where we already said that. I Well, he's he's given a couple of uh podcasts on magic. Yeah. It's all There's about the hat, coming not out the on Friday, stuff. just so you know, self-promotion plugs. It'll be part two. More interesting things. There's actually going to be a part three because I have so many incredible insights on the subject. By the way, Dan, what I was saying about kicking from the hip, you're into a brand new trip. I was oh. trying to do a couple of lyrics from oh. a song you may know. Kung Fu Fighting. Oh, of course. I, I don't remember the words to even my favorite songs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. that Those have great words. Absolutely great words. Great lyrics in that song. Uh, is there anybody else who is on the line, Bill? Or have they? Yeah, all yeah no, away? we've got other callers. They're waiting. So if we can get them in really quick oh, here. Let's, and let's uh, go. Yeah, no biggie. I was waiting for you guys. So uh, yeah. we were talking uh, about important stuff. Eric, yeah. you're on Mormonism Live with uh, the whole crew here. What's on your mind tonight? I, I, I hate to uh, interrupt the karate talk, but uh, I do have three very quick questions. Okay. Uh, the first is, Dan, what, what do when are we going to get to read your um, your your upcoming biography on the middle part of Joseph Smith's life? Well, I've been told it won't be until 2023. So because okay. they have well, a I'm, I'm signature books, so they have a lineup of other people before me. Okay, um, so, Brent, you mentioned mentioned Mike Quinn briefly. Um, I, I understand before he passed, he was working on a book uh, regarding post-manifesto polygamy. Uh, do either of you know what, what has happened to that research or his work in that regard? I, I, I don't offhand because um, I, it's my understanding that he was quite far along with it. And if you know Mike, he's an exhaustive researcher and his books can be very long and detailed because of that his footnotes can often be longer than the piece that he's actually written and so um i think i think that that he was quite far along but i don't know what happened to that and and i don't know i'm assuming that it probably would have gone to either Signature or the Smith Pettit Foundation. But but I don't know that for sure. And so I don't know if a manuscript was ever delivered so that they could do something posthumously. 
I I have not heard any details on that. I haven't either. Okay. All right. Well, here's the third one, and then I'll hang up. I'm looking forward to your answers on this. Uh, what documents does the church have, or, or what documents do you think the church has that you would like to see them release from their vault? Ooh. I already mentioned Thank one. Thank you. Right. <laughs> William Clayton Journals. That, but but that that's coming, be... right? Because they, they are going I to hear, I hear that. Yeah, it, well, I know some of the people who are working on it. And so um, it's part, I don't want to say it's an extension of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, because that would probably be inaccurate. But it's some of the folks who were involved in that project, now that that project is beginning to wind down, we're, we're coming to the tail end of it at this point, that... Um, a number of those historians and scholars are going to other projects and the William Clayton journals, that's one of their projects. And, and you can see, for example, the, the kind of access they've got. If you look at um, the recent, uh, fairly recent book in the last year or so, it was edited by Mark Ashurst McGee and and others i believe on the foundational texts of mormonism oh, yeah. um he actually includes an image in there from william clayton's diaries that i had never seen before and i have been wanting to see since not long after i got home from my mission and that is is it's the image of the page in william clayton's journal where he traces one of the Kinderhook plates onto the page. Because William Clayton actually had his journals with him when he was with Joseph Smith. I thought we had that, Brent. Yeah, no. no, Brigham no Young we had Brigham Young's. Yeah, okay. Right? Because yeah, Brigham Young also traced one of the plates okay. into his journal when he saw it right at Joseph Smith's residence. And then William Clayton, who was with Joseph Smith that entire day, when he says that Joseph says he's tra translated, you know, a portion of these, and this is what they say, or this is the narrative that they give, he actually traced one of the plates into his journal that day. And we know that it was one of the actual plates that he's tracing because when the facsimiles were published in the Times and Seasons, they're actually bigger than the plate themselves. So the size doesn't match, but the one in Clayton's journal matches the one that was found in Chicago in the museum. And it matches exactly the same size as that plate. And so we know that Clayton had his journal there, as did Brigham Young. And they were tracing one of the actual plates right into their journals. Uh, Brent, if I can interrupt here. Can we go back yeah. to that Hello, comment? Don Don, yeah, Don Bradley <laughs> just uh, made a comment that was put up on the screen about this okay. issue. And while yeah. we're looking at that comment, can we also get up that picture of the two of oh. you that also features Don Bradley? Here we go. 
Just FYI, I think I've got Don on the phone. If you guys want to take that. Yeah, please. Yeah. Hey, let's get that Hello, picture John. of Don Bradley while we like, give me, give me a second. Let me put him on. I got uh, Don. Can you hear me okay? Don, yeah, you're on the line. What can What's I do? You're on with me? all four guys. Yep, we can hear you. How are you doing, my friend? It's okay. been a long time. Hey. I'm good, friend. Um, I'm sorry. I've got uh, I've got my phone getting my uh, find my device feature, and so it's annoyingly ringing in my ears. <laughs> Hold on, just a sec. Well, he's going for his phone. There we have a picture of Don Bradley at a meeting with. Oh, there we go. And that's that's me right next to Don. The skinny one. Okay. No, I I'm the one. Oh, the one with the massive triceps that you're flexing for the picture. Yeah, that's me. (laughs) We'll answer almost any question except for how big Brent's biceps are. Uh-uh. I think there was an arm wrestling contest between Brent and Don immediately after this picture was taken. <laughs> so we, we were trying to scroll and, and, and my arm got ripped brain. off in the process. Yeah. <laughs> well, here we are. Here we are. This is what Don was talking about. Okay, I can't. Yes. That's what we do have a picture. Exactly. It's been Finally. recently published, though. Finally. Yeah, there you are. All right, Don. Do you have a question, Don, or or a comment or anything for the guys? I do. I do have a question. Um, um, So, Dan, I, well, well, actually, Brent and Dan both. Um, So, when people, I I really appreciate, Brent, how you told your story of like being an apologist, right? And then sort of growing in a different direction. Um, I think that people don't really realize that often when people who lose their faith, they started out very much as apologists, right? They were trying to defend. And uh, years ago when I was working for uh, Van Hale, I helped him do a little apologetic publication when I first came off my mission. Um, He had a copy of a... um, a pamphlet or tract basically written by you, Brent, called Oops, There Goes Christianity. <laughs> That's so um, embarrassing. <laughs> how, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, because it, was, uh, it, was, it yeah. was my play of Oops, go, There Goes the Priesthood, right? That anti Mormon mm-hmm. tract. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah, so right. that was. That was my play on that. Yeah. 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 And then uh, a few years later, um, I was surprised. I was looking at the the Mike Marquardt collection up at the U, and I was looking through Mike's files on uh, letters and different things. And Dan, I found a letter that you had written in the early 80s to Wes Walters about the Adam God theory. Yeah. And you were defending the church. You yeah. the letter in the letter you said, Yes, Brigham Young taught these things, but a prophet does a prophet really always have to be acting as a prophet? And so I was shocked, to be honest with you. I was um, you know, th- this was before I had kind of a more com- some more complex twists in my own personal journey. Uh, mm-hmm. but I was uh, quite startled to discover but you really, truly had once been an apologist. I mean, there's so much of an assumption out there right, that when people stop believing, 
it's because they, they want it to not believe. They don't want it to be true, right? Well, right. if you just hadn't wanted to believe, oh, yeah. and hadn't wanted it to be true, what were you doing defending it? Right. Well, <laughs> when Marty, it, uh, it doesn't get publicized. The cha My change doesn't get publicized as much as maybe yours, because mine was before the internet. Right. You know, it, right. or else it, really, these things would be all over the internet of me defending the church. Right. 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 And my right. transition right. would have been well, more well known, but there wasn't an internet and there wasn't this uh, uh, post Mormon community either. There was, right. when I was questioning it and, and transitioning, as they say nowadays, uh, there was nobody to talk to. You know, right. that, that my friend Mike Marquardt, who had gone through the through, through his uh, transformation already. Um, well, you you talked to me as well, Dan. Even though well, I, you, we, you weren't too far behind me, right? You know, right. you weren't too far behind me. But yeah, you were there. You were there. But during the the part where I actually told my Mormon friends that you know I really don't believe it anymore. I actually said it out loud, which which was not easy to to all of a sudden start talking out loud about not believing. Uh, it got easier as time went on, yeah. but but then there was nobody to talk to anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so right. so I was more or less on my yeah. own, and, and I I lost all my Mormon friends, and and I wasn't in Utah where there's Mormons everywhere anyway, and they you can't escape them. I. Uh, <laughs> I was living in California, so it was easy to be a uh, not. Nobody knew I was ever a Mormon, you know. And I went around and I uh, pretended like I didn't know anything about it. You know, I was a non-Mormon yeah. doing non-Mormon things. Don, <laughs> Don Bradley, yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. calling. I hate to give you the bums rush, but we just got a news flash that. Oh. Someone more important than you is waiting. It's the backyard professor. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Don. Thank you so much, Don. Great hearing from you. All right. Now we're going to the backyard professor. So we've got the backyard professor, Don Bradley, Dan Vogel, Brent Metcalf, Radio Free Mormon. Man, I'm having a ton of fun yeah, being real. around all the all the big shots tonight. Exactly. This is the part where I go again. Well, RFM, he's so Hello, he's, he's so important. He doesn't have a real name. <laughs> <laughs> They've given me a number and taken away my name, Dan. So, so you're kind of like Beyonce, right? Only goes by her first name. Well, you go by your acronym. We've so, given yeah. him a a new name. Oh, nice, right. nice. And the secret is that there's actually a hyphen between free and Mormon. <laughs> Speaking of new names, uh, backyard professor, what's on your mind tonight, my friend? Hello, you you wonderful people. <laughs> hey, uh, I I am not more important than Don Bradley. Just to <laughs> clarify this record, for hell's sake, you can't tell him that. Did I not put a sarcasm emoji hey, at the have, end of that comment? <laughs> I, I have two quick stories to tell about my two dear friends, Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf. Mm -hmm. uh, years ago, when I was when I was hosting one of our fair conferences, I can't remember if it was the third one or the fourth one, we were in 
town. I, if I remember correctly, in Provo, yeah. and Brent showed up. Yes. And I was talking with Mike Mike Ash inside, and he said, "Hey, Brent Metcalf is outside." And so I went outside, and I believe Brent. This was the first time I ever met you. Well, no, it was yes. the second time because I had met you before, but. Brent had all of the photos of the Joseph Smith Apparai man, and he kindly showed them to me. Page by page, he was showing me the photos and explaining to me why I was wrong and he was right. <laughs> and at that time... <laughs> At that time, I didn't get it, but I do now. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for your efforts, Brent Metcalf. Yeah, that was a fun time. We were outside under the shade of that tree. Oh, I, I remember it. We, yeah, yeah, we must have had an hour together where you were just showing me the papri, man. It, it was, yeah. And there they were inside. And believe it or not, I still remember that uh, Ben... I can't remember his last name. He was giving his talk on Nephi. McGuire? And I missed it all. What's that? It, was it Ben McGuire? Anyway. Yes, yes, Ben McGuire. Yeah, it was. Thank you. It yeah, was. and I missed, his, I, missed, I missed his whole talk, and I confess to him, I apologize, but I really had a great time with Brent Metcalf, and he was jealous because I was with you instead. Uh, and then well, my other story about Dan Vogel. Yeah. What? No, no. I, I was just going to say, just to to clarify, what I had there were photographs of the entire Egyptian project, the papyri, and the Book of Abraham translation manuscripts. They were actual size, color yeah. photographs of all of them. And I was yeah. one of the, the few people in existence pretty much who had those yeah yeah, was yeah that, i was uh, so mad you, rem you, you remember me asking you how come you can't publish these and you said just be patient time will time will happen but i was so mad that the church wasn't publishing those and you had them and they weren't letting you publish them that was really making me upset so yeah, yeah that was a fun time and then so and back here, I do Professor. Hurry up and tell my story about. Back, you have a story about what? Dan Vogel. Yeah, um, I hope it involves that, a geisha that wonderful house. Wonderful picture. Oh. It does. Okay. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Whatever the hell that is. <laughs> anyway, uh, that picture with Dan that you guys showed earlier—that uh, was at a sunstone. I went to that sunstone because. I was going to meet my good friend, Joe Steve Swick. And oh, I was yeah. on a Mormon mystic uh, email list with uh, him. And I, I think I have Dan a photo of you together. Yeah. Yeah. With me and Joe. Yeah. I, yeah. I that think, was I think awesome Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to, uh, I went to his lecture on his book on Freemasonry and about his book anyway. 
And, uh, and so I got to meet Dan and, and we had a wonderful discussion upstairs. Someone walked by, I think, if I remember right, and said, hey, Dan Bogle and Kerry Shirts together. I've got to get a picture of this. So we hurried and backed up to that rail and almost fell over and laughed at each other and held on to each other. But that was the day, you guys. Here's the story part that I want to share. That was the day that I found and bought Riskus's book, Deconstructing Mormonism, the book that broke my shelf. That was yeah. that same day. So what a memorable day. I got to meet and talk with Dan Vogel. I got to be with Joe Steve Swick. And I found my redeeming book of quality that made me think in a new way. Yeah, wow. baby. So anyway, I just yeah, wanted to tell all you guys fantastic show. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's great to see you two again. It's always great to see you, Bill and RFM. And uh, I appreciate all of you. Really, I do. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Carrie. We're going to have to wind up tonight's show. We're rapidly coming around the clubhouse turn on two hours. It seems only like two minutes. We got one more caller if we can sneak him in really quick. Okay. Is it, He's been waiting for 20 years. It's Daniel, Daniel C. Peter. No, it's not. It is a guy by the name of Mickey McGee. Mickey, you've got two questions for Vogel. I, I, I want you to get them both in, but be quick if you can. Sure. Uh, love the, your podcast, Dan. I mean, your YouTube videos. One, um, I'm curious in your, in your Mormon studies, Joseph Smith studies, have you ever come across um, Stephen Markham? He was a scribe, a messenger for Joseph. And two, my second question, um, in all of the, the not the riots, it's a lousy time to have a brain fart. Um, in all of the, the mobs that attacked Joseph Smith, um, has there ever been a study on the origins of each mob, who, who was attacking them and all that? Who the instigators were? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, they did keep keep lists of the persecutors of Joseph Smith in the in in the archives, uh, especially the murders of Joseph Smith. But um, no, uh, I don't know who was in. There's the this beautiful book. This thing. This thing tells the whole story. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, By so Dallin that, H. Oaks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> On the founding board of dialogue, you know? Exactly. Nolan Oaks, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's such a liberal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that Oaks. <laughs> yeah. You know, I read that book back in the late 1980s, and I think I was a senior in law school, and I found it imponderable. Or maybe I should say I found it ponderable. Ponderous is the word. You should have ponderized it. It's ponderous. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I actually bought those t-shirts, by the way, Bill. It says ponderize on it. I I bought them before they stopped selling them. That's a collector's item. I I rushed out and grabbed one. So smart move. To his first question, he was asking about Markham as a scribe for Joseph. Oh, Um, Markham. Do you, do you know much like much about I, I guess well, that's not a name that really strikes my memory. Uh, 
I can't remember anything specific. Well, I, I know Mark, uh, Stephen Markham, of course, because it, when I, the Huntington Beach steak I belonged to, the um, Markhams uh, were my dentist. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so Nothing memorable about the guy beyond a, that. A copy of some of his writings somewhere around here. But uh, there, Markham did supply some information for the history of the church in uh, several places. And I think I have it listed in the eight-volume series. If you look in the first volume, it has a list of all the sources used. And I, and I think there some of it's not available anymore. And right. so it there's stories and they keep dealing with Markham that we don't have sources for that. I speculate that they used to have some kind of Markham writing that they were using to compile that part of the history of the church. Mm. And it, Maybe it's it, out it, there somewhere. Maybe it, it's in Joseph Fielding Smith's. They had interviews with Markham in preparation for the, uh, in Utah. Yeah, I believe it was. So, 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 Bill, if I if I can add just one other thing, I was going to say, for those folks who who watched and listened uh, tonight, um, who felt like, oh, I was really hoping that they were going to do a deep dive on all of these scholarly issues and so on. Um, we are in Dan and I are in conversations with these two fine gentlemen on, on doing a podcast together in this venue that would be specifically on the book of Abraham mm. where, where we would do a deep dive. Love it. And um, so, so plenty tonight, there for an hour. It, yeah. To, tonight it's like, get to know Dan and Brent, but, but for that one, um, we would really like to do something that's more intricate, detailed, and going into the documents and so on. Because like Dan says, you can't really talk about this stuff unless you've actually read them. And mm -hmm. both of us have read them time and again. And I, I just wish the apologists would read them. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> need both, Dan. Zing. Even even yeah. an apologist, Egyptologist, right? Yeah, exactly. Even the Egyptologists, you know, uh, should at least read the Joseph Smith papers, uh, the English texts that were produced in the process of understanding the Egyptian papyri Joseph Smith purchased. Uh, they keep talking about them, but they just don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as a layman, it seems pretty simple to me in yeah. that nothing adds up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, the they should be understood on their own terms first yeah. before you try to speculate and comment about them. Yeah, um, exactly. So... To me, they can talk about the Egyptian, uh, you know, the Book of the Dead, all they want, and or the Book of Breathings. Uh, Don't forget those canopic jars. Yeah, they can talk about all that, you know. Yeah. And Rittner handled that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what Brent and I really want to talk about is the 
the Joseph Smith era documents. Love it. And the meaning, the actual meaning, because Nibley didn't even come close to no, understanding no. what they were about. Um, no. The meaning yeah, of his, the Joseph his, 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 his article, his article, Joseph Smith papers. Yeah, Nibley's article, The Meaning of the Kirtland Egyptian Papers, yeah. is one of the most flawed articles I think I've ever read. You know, it, it's got so many problems with it. Have you yeah. heard of an author named John Gee? Yeah. No, this is Hugh Nibley. Right? I know, I know, no, no. You said it was the worst you had ever heard. Oh, oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well Nibley's takes it to a whole new level. I mean, there is stuff that he is talking about that clearly he doesn't know what he's talking about with the documents at all. And I don't know what he's using, if they actually gave him access to the originals or what, but it's just, you know, I respect Hugh Nibley as a social commentator because I think he came up with some fascinating, fascinating ideas. Yeah, leaders and managers. When he talked about social issues, yeah. right? But when it comes to the Book of Abraham manuscripts, it, it's it, it's pretty bad. And we can talk about some of those things in in more detail when we do another podcast. Sounds good. Well, and apologists are trying to keep. Nibley's basic theory uh, alive and yeah. as if they can't go on to something else. And um, But there is signs that uh, even Gee and uh, Milstein are uh, starting to slip on, right. on their law scroll theory, their reverse translation theory uh, and the next uh, stopping point would be the catalyst exactly theory, which isn't too much different than my pious fraud theory no it looks the same doesn't it rfm yeah, yeah. i think the evidence for each is exactly the same <laughs> right, right. Uh, oh just a hop skip and a jump no and in this most recent fair uh interview with John Gee that went up, I think it was in December, and I had brought it to Dan Vogel's attention, and he immediately got to work on a video response, which has now been up for a couple weeks now, Dan? Yeah. And I watched that. That was very interesting. But in that video, I was surprised to see John Gee, the foremost living proponent of the missing papyrus theory. In fact, you might as well call it the John Gee theory, except it goes back to Hugh Nibley. But the huge proponent of it, actually putting it on an almost equal basis as the catalyst theory. Yep. I was yeah, shocked. Yeah, well, he said it was a second best theory, but he didn't think there was much evidence. And But then he tried to present evidence for his theory, and it just doesn't work out very well. Um, yeah. So... so I, I'm hoping that uh, I can push them more towards the, at least the catalyst theory. The catalyst theory is somewhat acceptable. The only difference between that and my theory is that they think Joseph Smith mistakenly believed he was translating from the papyri. And my theory is that he knew he wasn't translating from the papyri. 
Right. You know, the evidence looks exactly the same. But he, but he still believed that his uh, book, he could have believed that his book was inspired anyway, but that he would attach it to these scrolls. And unlike the Book of Mormon, he actually had something to show. And, and, he, and he loved showing them to people, whoever came by. Anybody came by, he showed, oh, look at yeah. Here they are. Here's the uh, signature of Abraham. Exactly and, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so uh, he may have believed he was inspired. A, a scholar, scholars, as scholars, I have my personal views, but as scholars, we, we don't say... He, Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet because that could be anything. And he, we can't say he wasn't inspired. I mean, he could be inspired, but we can say he didn't translate the book, you know, Abraham from these scrolls that he got. These really low grade, bad copies happened to have, you know, forget about all those fancy uh, book of breathings uh, in color and everything in these museums. Uh, none of them had a book of Abraham attached to it, but this, this little scrap over here, this priest that, you know, with a really low grade copy of, of the book of uh, breathings uh, happens to have the book of Abraham attached to the end. A, why would he attach it to the end when he's a priest Hor, the priest, he believes in Osiris and he's going to attach a Hebrew prophet that condemns his God, all the gods, <laughs> To the end oh, of his book, it just doesn't Dan, make any sense. Dan, that's part of the story of the Book of <laughs> Abraham, right? Is it's, that God destroys the idols of the Egyptians, and it's like, oh my goodness, and and this is what they're going to present in this, you know, clearly Egyptian document. And Dan, I. I think that's one of the most effective arguments that I have heard you say, and I, I read it in your book recently where you make that argument. And the reason why I think it's so brilliant is that number one, it makes absolute sense and it doesn't require any knowledge of the somewhat complex Abraham Egyptian papers in order to understand. Yeah. 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 And the other, uh, thinking through their theory a little bit more is that uh, wh where's the book of Joseph? And it uh, was that attached to the end of the Tai Sheret Min papyrus? Right. I don't think so. Right. And that was the second best argument I read in your book. <laughs> right. Sometimes I think you said something. Sometimes I don't think the apologists consider the, what, what is it? the conclusions or the ramifications of yeah. their own arguments. Thinking their theories all the way through. Yeah. Let's I, believe I, it. I, Let's I believe it for a second. It just doesn't pan out. Yeah. I think I, we've already started the next podcast. Yeah, let's let's yeah. save it, guys. Let's not, <laughs> nobody will tune in the next one. Uh, well, you guys were awesome. We had uh, about 400 and I think 80 people or so at one wow. point. So that's really good. That's live. Well, good and then seeing everybody. Yeah. And over the course yeah. of the next week or so, fifteen to twenty thousand people will probably give it a listen. So and half of them will be in the church office building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The SCMC is responsible for a lot of our downloads. <laughs> and well, Dan thanks, Peterson guys. will watch it five times and then deny that he's had time to see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got somewhere to go, places to be, no well, time. As soon as to... he finds out we mentioned his name, he'll watch it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I hope he doesn't mind yeah. the egg Hi, with the mustache crack. 
I'm just kidding, man. Admit he won't admit he watched it, so you're good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Anything else from URFM? And, and appreciate it, guys. I just had a wonderful time tonight. This has been an exciting, exciting episode. Looking so forward to having you two back on the show to talk about your insights into the book of Abraham. Cool. Anytime. Let's do it. Love it. All right. I'll close out the show. Guys, have a great night. Listeners, thank you so much. I think there was about 600 bucks donated uh, tonight. Uh, so appreciate everybody doing that. Right. And uh, have a great evening. All right. Thanks.